0: Welcome to the Biblical Languages podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. We bring together the latest research in linguistics, language acquisition, and biblical studies to better understand the biblical languages and ultimately the biblical text. As always, this episode is brought to you by Biblingo, the premier solution for learning, maintaining, and enjoying the biblical languages. Visit Biblingo.org to learn more and start your 10-day free trial.
1: This is a republished episode of the conversation I had with Jason Staples about his book, Paul and the Resurrection of Israel. I had the privilege of talking to Jason about this book um, before it came out, and it is now out for sale on Amazon and wherever you might buy books. So, I would highly encourage you to go check this book out. Um, Again, Paul and the Resurrection of Israel. And I hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Jason about his groundbreaking new book. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks. Glad to be here. So just a little bit about Jason. He is the assistant teaching professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at NC State University. He's the author of two books, The Idea of Israel and Second Temple Judaism, published with Cambridge University Press in 2021, and Paul and the Resurrection of Israel, which will come out next year, also with Cambridge University Press. And that's what we're gonna be talking about primarily today. He has also worked in sports media for 15 years, used to coach football, and does voiceover work to ensure his family can survive. And he will be launching the Bible podcast, Bible Pod podcast in the next few months. So I am um, very excited about this conversation. So. You know, we're doing this series on key terms in Paul, and I I really feel like um, much more at home with every other one of these terms: Um, faith, righteousness, law, um, and I'm Messiah. I've done you know my own until I work on it, but Israel is one that I just didn't know anything about. Read your first book, um, and honestly, it seems like everyone is kind of like that, (laughs) Um, you know, because this term has kind of been ignored or assumed, you know, we've all assumed that we know what it means. Um, So what is your basic argument about what Israel means, just for someone that, you know, um, doesn't know anything about this whole discussion?
0: Yeah, and and you're right that generally speaking, the, uh, the part of the problem has been that most folks have just assumed that we, we know, Uh you know, and when I started, I, I kind of did the same, same thing that you assume that, you know, what these terms mean uh, and nearly all modern scholarship has assumed that Israel in the second temple period, that when you hear someone say Israel, you read Israel on the page, that that is synonymous with the Jews. And that, I mean, it seems pretty no- natural that that would be the case, Uh you know, that, and by Jews, I mean, you know, in Greek, Yehudai, or uh, Hebrew, you know, Yehudim, uh, and, you know, that there's another more or less synonymous term, Hebrews, that also applies there, and so you've tended to, you know, have biblical scholars, you read a lot of work in biblical scholarship over the past couple centuries, and Israel and uh, Israelites and Jews, or Israel and the Jews, are used Interchangeably, I mean, in the sense of, you know, you have a lot of scholars that, that interchange those terms for style because they don't want to repeat themselves over and over again. Uh, and then that's led to some, you know, I think, interpretive problems, because once you actually take a really close look at the evidence, you find out that there are some differences in the way that these terms are used and that they're not used. Uh, if they were if they were exactly synonymous, you'd expect their distribution across the literature to be more or less even, that you'd see, you know, some interchangeable use, like what you see in, in biblical scholarship. Uh, but that's not the case. And uh, the conclusion of my first book was that the term Jews, or, uh, you know, Jew as a singular, uh, that that Jews are a subset of the supercategory of Israel, uh, specifically the subset that's derived from the southern kingdom of Judah, which is, of course, where Jew or Yehudaioi or Yehudim, you know, those terms come from Judah. And it turns out that the way that that term is used throughout the second temple period, it consistently means something like Judahite. It's just Judahite. Uh, So when you say Jew in the second temple period, you're referring to people from Judah uh, and, you know, or Judea as it comes into Latin. Uh, uh, So... You have, uh, you have a, a bit of a distinction there because Israel then is a, is that larger category that includes those associated with and descended from the northern kingdom of Israel who are not from Judah. So Judah, by the way, can of course include the traditional southern tribes. So it's not just from the tribe of Judah. That makes it even more confusing because you can have someone from Benjamin who's also a Jew, like Paul, right? Uh, he's, from the group that's traditionally associated with the kingdom of Judah, but he's a Benjaminite. Uh, So on the other hand, though, Israel includes those who are from the northern kingdom and not associated with the the southern kingdom of Judah. And ultimately, that means that by definition, there are non-Jewish Israelites. Some of Israel is not Jewish, and that that's pretty much always the case going all the way back into the biblical period. Uh, In fact, when you, you know, get to first and second Kings, Israel is always the Northern kingdom and uh, you know, over and against the kingdom of Judah. And so, you know, those tribes, when you're talking about Israelites after the, after the destruction or after the uh, division between the kingdoms, when you're talking about Israelites, you're talking about non-Jews. You're talking about not people, not from Judah. Uh, It only gets a little more complicated once the kingdom of Israel stops uh, existing as its own entity, and Judah starts to uh, try to lay claim to the rule over that previous area of Israel and, and to sort of subsume larger Israel under their authority. But still, you don't see Judah identified with Israel uh, throughout. It's still Judah as prime tribe within Israel, and that, and that, that carries through the Second Temple period. And then Hebrew, of course, I, I, only touch on a little bit, but Hebrew is in the second temple period. I mean, first temple period, there's lots of theories on what that may have actually derived from. But in the second temple period, it's consistently treated as a linguistic term. So you have, you know, Hebraioi are, the, are, are over and against, uh, Hellenes. You know, they're, they're the people who are not Greek speakers. They're Hebrew speakers. Whether that means Hebrew or Aramaic is, is, you know, another question, but basically Semitic speakers. Uh, and those Semitic speakers may or may not be Jewish. They may be Samaritan. And that the Samaritans are, are, of course, your prime example of a group of people who are not Jews, who do not claim to be Jews, who Jews do not identify as Jews, who claim to be Israel or to claim to be Israelites descended from northern tribes. And, you know, there's some Jews who, you know, call into question whether or not they're really Israelites or whether they're, you know, uh, just... In, uh, some israelites who intermarried with the with the nations that were scattered there by uh by assyria and therefore they've you know di- they're disqualified from being uh you know true truly israelite since you know they they're they the the holy seed has been adulterated in some way but still they're claiming to be israel and not judah and so that is um that's, that's an important distinction. And for me, once we recognize that distinction, a lot of texts start to make a lot more sense. And I think Paul is perhaps the one that, that, ha- that this distinction, it ends up mattering the most because of a lot of the things that he does with, uh, Jews and Gentiles and then Israel and, and all of these discussions about how this all works in light of the Messiah. And essentially, my argument in the first book is that there's a large strand of restoration eschatology, in which Jews are consistently expecting God to restore the whole people of Israel, that is, all 12 people from all 12 tribes, including both Jews, that is, those from Judah, and the non-Jewish Israelites from the other tribes, from the northern kingdom of Israel, most of whom are understood as having been scattered among the nations, and they're out there in some fashion. And then there's some uh, debate and dispute on how exactly that's going to happen, there's some who question whether it's going to happen, but in any case, that's a live conversation in the Second Temple period about Israel's restoration, which is more than just like Jewish independence or you know Jewish Jewish rule over the nations or whatnot. It has to involve these non-Jewish Israelites in order for it to be the fulfillment of the prophecies that that uh, these Jewish thinkers are actually expecting.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I I feel like that really catches us up to speed on first book <laughs> right I mean, I mean obviously you've written you know 400 pages on it and there's, there's a little bit more to it but but the basic idea and honestly when i read it i said oh duh right i mean it, it is a kind of like like a, you know why hadn't i thought of that but this is really obvious right that that these two terms refer to different people because that's just what they are in the bible right i mean it's just like <laughs> in the bible there's a tribe of judah and the northern kingdom of israel you know? I mean it's it's in it and then it's like, well how why in the Second Temple period would they just like you know, that distinction would just evaporate, right? I mean it just doesn't it actually doesn't make, you know, any sense that it would. But but you're right, right, that when we come to Paul and it's especially scholarship about Paul, it's like, you know, it's totally synonymous. And and people have that's what people have said, right? And and people have um, you know, just not paid enough attention, I think, even to the term Israel. I mean, when you just look for the term Israel in Paul, you know, like why he doesn't start with the term Israel until Romans nine, right? In in Romans, and it's like why? If if he's again, the distribution is just is is rather striking. Um, so so just talking about Paul here. So under your view, you you, you alluded to this. Um, what is what is the basic problem Paul is trying to solve? And so you you talked about this you know restoration of Israel right the reunification of the twelve tribes what what is Paul um wrestling with this idea of okay we have Jews we still need Israel right is that the basic
0: issue for Paul I think it's I think that's part of it I think there's a little more to it than that but I think that's a big part of it um and by the way you mentioned you know the the response being duh you know this is obvious. I think actually that's my you know you, you you kind of kind of have to identify what you're what sets you apart as a scholar whatnot. My scholarly superpower is that I'm I'm too simple to you know accept certain things, and I just keep asking why, and I find these obvious things, and then discover that like oh wow, and it shouldn't take 400 pages to to demonstrate this sort of thing, but it turns out that you know you can you can say the obvious thing, but then you actually have to defend it, and that's the hard yeah. part. So, well, that's what that's especially about, especially when but, everyone else is denying the obvious thing. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's the hard part. So, so yeah, I've spent, you know, 20 years on this project now and uh and I'm ready to be done with this one obvious thing that I've been working on for 20 years. But um but yeah, I think uh for Paul, I think the basic problem boils down to this. And that is if Jesus is Israel's Messiah, which I think it's pretty obvious that that's what Paul thinks. He explicitly says this. So if Jesus is the Messiah, then, well, the Messiah is supposed to be associated with the restoration of Israel that we were just talking about, right? So, okay, this is a bit of a problem. If Jesus is the Messiah, where is this restoration that was promised? And beyond that, so where is Israel's restoration, which has to involve essentially a few things, all 12 tribes a, uh, an internal transformation so that Israel is going to be obedient. Uh, you know, this is the whole notion of the new covenant in Jeremiah. You get the new heart, new spirit in Ezekiel and so on. Uh, that this, Because Israel, again, was that, the idea is that Israel was exiled and scattered because of disobedience. If they're not made obedient when, when they're restored, it's just going to happen again. So the final restoration is going to involve a transformation to be a just people who obey God, it's going to involve all twelve tribes, and it's going to involve a reunification and return in some way. I, I think he does have some sort of land expectation, although it's it's minimal in the in the letters. Uh, the question is, okay, if if Jesus is has initiated this, and Paul thinks he has, um, that doesn't look like it's happening. <laughs> so then the then you have the additional problem of these Gentiles, uncircumcised men receiving the Spirit, which was promised to Israel as part of the restoration. And so if you're in Paul's shoes, you're looking around and going, okay, expecting the restoration, not seeing exactly what I might expect, and then I'm seeing this. Okay, so what does this have to do with this, and how am I going to explain this? So actually, if I were going to summarize the problem uh, in one line that Paul, I think, is wrestling with, it's actually... What I think is the thesis statement of the Book of Acts, which is, "Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel?" And Paul is trying to to explain and also, you know, work through himself what this restoration of the kingdom to Israel looks like. And as in Acts, I mean, Acts, I think, makes a similar case. I mean, he's a second-generation Pauline Christian uh, who's writing this. Uh, he argues that. Well, the restoration of Israel has to involve the Gentiles somehow. I think Paul ultimately comes to that conclusion and, you know, Acts builds on that and so on. But Paul's, ar- that's, that's the question. That's the problem that he's dealing with is, if Jesus is the Messiah, what is going on with these Gentiles receiving the promise to Israel? And where is Israel in all of this? So I think that's basically what it boils down to.
1: Right. Yeah. That's just, that's really interesting. I mean, I mean, again, it, it is um, when when you put it in the you know them expecting to be restored. Right. It is. It is again one of those things where you read the prophets and you're like, oh, of course. Right. Of course it's that they're everywhere. expecting this. Right. But but for, for whatever reason, we just don't read Paul and the prophets together or something. I mean, those two sort of ideas just haven't really. I mean, they're just not so as central. I mean, you know,
0: people are starting to do it more. Um, I, I think there's actually a part of the problem here is the history of biblical scholarship. Uh, you have to remember, a lot of the of professional academic biblical scholarship came out of a Protestant context in which the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, was more or less de-emphasized, and Paul was understood as essentially proclaiming. Not quite a Marcionite gospel, but something not, not, not far from it. And you look at a lot of the, you know, the old, uh, uh, German scholars on Paul from the 19th century, uh, and you're going to find that it's, it's an intentional thing that they're not reading the prophets in Paul. Like it's a willful thing. And then the way that scholarship works is we all get trained, and you know this as well as anybody, right? We all get trained in the scholarship. Right. We're introduced to the discussions that came before us. And so, you know, I have to learn F.C. Bauer and what F.C. Bauer said. And then I'm responding to Bauer and, and all scholarship is, is, you know, iterative and it builds on what came before. Well, if what came before is already resting on some really problematic assumptions, then it takes some significant paradigm shifts to actually reexamine those, those foundational things that We don't actually, we're not trained to question because that's part of the, of the discourse that we're, that we're, uh, that we're trained into. So I think I, I, you know, I've been frankly shocked at times when I've talked to some other biblical scholars, other scholars of Paul, and I'll mention something from, say, Deuteronomy or the prophets, and I get a blank look. They're not familiar with that passage because, again, the other thing is, we're all we all tend to be trained in a silo and this is all this is more the case for certain new testament programs where it's not a broad program where you're getting you know early judaism hebrew bible uh you know larger context and then maybe you focus on one thing it's you're doing new testament and you don't really learn other things and so a lot of pauline scholarship is very myopic and uh and insular in that you're trying to do close, close readings of Paul. And I've been, like I said, I've been surprised by, by some folks, uh, not, you know, some of our colleagues who don't actually know other portions of the Bible and things that Paul would have had second nature. They don't know that all that well. And then that also leads to questions of, well, I mean, would Paul have really expected, you know, his audience to know like Ezekiel that well? You know, come on, he, like he couldn't be like this subtle about that. And then you read First Clement, and you go, yeah, maybe his audience was actually that sophisticated, at least some of them. So, uh, or you know, the author of Acts is certainly sophisticated enough to do that. So this this again gets into some of that, some of those problems within the guild that we have to, if we're going to do good work, we have to understand that you know some of the very roots of the guild aren't uh, aren't helpful for us well and i think that really
1: is the um you know just in scholarship in general those are the kinds of things that end up being the foundation right is is when people question the very basic things right you know i mean that was ep sanders's work it was like okay let's go back and look at this again right even though everyone's assumed this right what was Judaism really like and 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 that that kind of question right is
0: is really um you know the kind of like groundbreaking question it turns out that these german scholars from the 19th century didn't really under these german new testament scholars didn't really understand judaism that's that's you know paul and palestinian judaism right there when these 19th century german scholars didn't really understand judaism and we've all been building on them so maybe we should reevaluate that and <laughs> it turns out that there's a lot more a lot more meat left on that bone right right
1: so let's um so you know, I I read through about half, maybe two thirds of your book, um, that you know the new one. So I'm I got the privilege of of a sneak peek at some of these things. So one of the striking things is that you you basically ignore Romans three through eight, <laughs> and you you have very detailed exegesis of Romans, you know, one to nine through eleven. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I I think I think you have like two pages on Romans three through eight. You know, it's like okay, well, you know, I I should say something about these these texts. You know, since literally truckloads of you know volumes have been written on it, um, but but I think what's really helpful actually is, um, you know, these are texts that have been glossed over or ignored, right, or just said okay, like Paul didn't write this, or or you know, anything we can do to to not interpret the text um has been done so so what i would like to do is just kind of go through romans 2 and some of the some of your points on you know the exegetical points so because that i think really is the strength of of your work both in the israel book and and the paul book um you know you you're reading the text carefully and closely and I, I, that's actually what has to be done right for any of these things um at the end of the day it's just you know what does the text say and you know, being a careful reader of that text um, is just so important. I think you do a great job of that. So, let's just start with Romans two. Um, what, so first of all, why have people just you know brush Romans two under the rug, and and how have people dealt with it in general? How have they gotten rid of Romans
0: two, um, and 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 why? Yeah. So, and actually, you know, getting to to why I basically didn't do much in in three through uh, three through eight. Like you said, those are the ones that everybody sort of. There's been a ton written on, and there's a lot of confidence about what those mean. But then you've got Romans one and two and nine to eleven, which of course are the frames for those central central chapters. Uh, that then once you know once the traditional readings of three through eight are are in place, people look back at one and two and nine to eleven, and they're like, this doesn't really fit very well. And my approach <laughs> to this was. You know I've always thought of of, of uh, uh you know doing Pauline exegesis is sort of like a putting together a puzzle, and you know my thought is if you finish the puzzle and there are certain pieces that are still on the table, <laughs> and you know they like you you wind up you've got this picture put together and you're like, okay, I got it done. Why are there these five pieces over here? Well, I guess those just weren't part of the puzzle I'm like they came in the box. <laughs> <laughs> so, my thought is, okay, look, we've got this puzzle put together, and there are these pieces that lots of people just leave there and they say, "Well, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's a later interpolation or maybe Paul's just talking about like maybe Paul's talking in the voice of his of his of his enemies here or something because this clearly can't you know cohere with what we what we've got elsewhere. My thought is, you know maybe maybe the problem is that we put the puzzle together wrongly, and that's why <laughs> these pieces don't fit. And so what I tried to do is I actually went out of my way to go to some of the most difficult the passages that everybody kind of throws their hands up in the air and says, "Well, I don't really know what this means and, you know, cuz this doesn't really fit." Okay, I'm going to do those passages and I'm going to show how those passages actually make sense. And once we get the foundation of those passages and those pieces are put on put in place on the table, some of these other things like Romans 3 through 8 are going to go in different spots uh, in that puzzle. And I think it'll fit together much better. But if I was going to do three through eight, this book would have been 1200 pages, you know, or more, uh, especially given how much has been written on those. Uh, so for my, you know, for my money, you know, my hope is that someone will uh, come along and, you know, build on on the the foundation of some of these more difficult passages and say, oh, that makes more sense of this in Romans four. Now, you know, that that's kind of the hope. But anyway, when we get to Romans two, um, As you said, this has been uh, a passage—I uh, think Klein Snidegra- or Snodgrass is the one that said uh, more time has been spent uh, explaining the text away than explaining it in Romans 2. Like, well, I mean, clearly, you know, like, this is what it says, but, like, Paul doesn't really mean that. And you've got, you know, different <laughs> right. explanations ranging from, you know, E.P. E. Sanders actually leaves Romans 2— uh, to an appendix in Paul the Law and the Jewish People, because he says, "Yeah, um, uh, what, what's the quote? Uh, the treatment of the law in chapter two cannot be harmonized with any of the diverse things which Paul says about the law elsewhere." Which to me is a little surprising because this is how he leads into the discussion about the about the law about the Torah in Romans. So if it's that out of bounds like that seems like an like either he's the most incoherent and awful introducer of his arguments or maybe we've got we've not got what he said about the law right in some of those other places. So um so yeah the, the main problem there is that uh Sanders basically uh, says um you know the problem with Romans 2 is that uh, it does not naturally lead up to the conclusion that no one keeps the law, much less that the law cannot be kept. And instead, Romans 2 argues that the Torah, the law can and must be kept. So if that's the case, then how do we get to, you know, well, according to the Torah, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and so on. So, you know, this is why, uh, Stan Stowers said, uh, uh, interpreters have typically flown over Romans 2, uh, at uh, high speed and high altitude to get to their landing spot in Romans three, where they can start doing their work. Uh, and my take is I think we need to read this very seriously as something that Paul probably thinks. Uh, and, you know, of course, you've got Douglas Campbell and, and and some folks following him on this. He's basically developed out of the Sanders. I mean, Campbell's very much re- uh, a close reader of Sanders uh, and where Sanders said, this doesn't fit Paul uh, in Paul's reading of the, of the law. Uh, Campbell has concluded that this must be Paul, you know, doing speech in character essentially, uh, of what his opponents would say and then responding to that in later chapters. Uh, I don't find that all that compelling because there's not a lot of markers. I mean, there's no markers that he is introducing other speakers here. So, uh, I started from the perspective, from the, from the assumption that Paul's probably saying what he thinks. And then how then does that actually uh, play together with the restoration eschat- eschatology that we see in other Pauline passages and also in other second temple Jewish texts
1: so so then what is I mean how do you um if you start from Romans two right and you you look at a verse like verse thirteen right um, where it is you know the the doers of the law who will be justified um, what do you do with you know how, uh, that text? Versus, you know, Romans 3, 20 and twenty one, right? Um, where, the, you know, no flesh will be justified before Him through, you know, ergonomu, right? How um, how how do you? I mean, I know, obviously, you don't you don't deal with that problem, right? <laughs> but but if if we read if we read two thirteen at face value, it's do Torah. You will be justified, <laughs> right? Whatever justified means. Um, you know, but so 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 what is that text saying? And then how how do we read you know Romans three in light of that? Because it, it because typically it's just been done the other way around, right? Typically it's just said, Oh, okay, well, we have Romans three, let's read two in light of that, right? and, and when reading two in light of that, we just say, Oh, this person doesn't exist, or it's hypothetical, or you know, whatever else. Right. But we just haven't said I mean, I mean, to go the other way forces you also into an interpretation of what really the other passage as well. Right. So so how, how would you how would you deal with that tension?
0: Yeah, I think and, and I think that, that that's really well put that typically what's happened is people have read Romans three and then they've read Romans two. They've read backwards and they've read backwards into Romans two to say, OK, this is what this must mean. And I think the letter should be read forwards. <laughs> Romans I know, 2 crazy. comes before Romans 3 <laughs> for a reason, right? Paul is setting up Romans 3 with what he says in Romans 2. So we should read it forward and Romans 2 is helping us understand what he says in Romans 3, or at least it should be. Uh, and my understanding of this is that Paul is dealing with what, uh, I think in the book I called it the uh, paradox of, 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 uh, of justness or of justification. And that is that uh, in order to do just things, you like just people do just things, but you don't become just by doing just things, right? You have to actually be a just person who's going to do those just things. So the problem then is how does one become justified? How does one actually become justified in the sense of becoming a doer of good? And Paul's argument is you can't actually go about it by doing the works of torah by you know circumcision or observing specific requirements that are in the torah that doesn't actually solve the problem uh so if i actually want to you know get into if i want to use a, a, a another book of of the new testament to kind of explain this in matthew jesus says unless your justness or your you know exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Which, that's a big deal, because these are people who are actively going about making sure that they do the erga namu, the, the the works of, of, of Torah. But Jesus says that's insufficient, and if you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, the issue there is, uh, and he said, you know, this says it well in, in the, if your eye offends you, if your hand offends you, then cut it off, if it causes you to sin. Well, of course, the, the, the key to that passage is recognizing that nobody's eye or hand actually causes them to sin. Jesus says elsewhere that sin comes from the heart. So what is it that you need in order to for your justice or your justness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? You need a new heart that will then ensure that you don't covet, that you don't uh hate your brother in your heart, because it's not the murder that's exactly what this is getting after. What it's getting after is if you hate your brother in your heart, then you also are worthy of judgment, right? So the issue here is that doing those ergonomu doesn't actually deal with the heart problem that is the root of sin and, what, and, and, and that causes people to disobey God and ultimately causes people to fall short of keeping the Torah fully. So what I see is Romans, Romans 2 saying, yes, the doer of the Torah will be justified will be vindicated in this case and of course you know that that terminology is has the nice double meaning there it can be either one uh and, and what i see him saying is you know according to what i'm saying the the people who are uh, the doers of torah will be justified and then what's what does he say for when gentiles who do not have the torah or when ethne when gentiles do not who do not have the torah instinctively or or by nature perform the uh perform the torah or do torah these though not having a, having the torah become a torah to themselves in that they what manifest they demonstrate the work of torah written in their hearts their conscience testifying and uh, alternately accusing or defending them and the work of torah written in their heart on their hearts is really important language here because that of course connects you with the one place in 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 early Jewish literature, where we have discussion of the Torah written on the heart, which is the new covenant promised to Israel and Judah, in those days, says you know Adonai, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, the covenant which they broke when I led them, or uh, when I led them by the hand out of Egypt, the covenant which they broke, but this will be the covenant that I will make with them. I will write my Torah on their hearts. And the conclusion of that is, and they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, and no longer will they need to be taught. And of course, Paul then says, you are theododactoi, you are taught of God uh, in First Thessalonians. Uh, Here he's saying, you have the Torah written on your heart. The whole point here is that the Torah written on the heart then makes the person obedient, so that they do the things that the Torah requires. And this is what we see later on in in Romans 2, where Paul talks about the person who has had the circumcision of the heart which is similar terminology that is drawing actually from uh from uh the Hebrew version of uh, Deuteronomy 30 interestingly the the Greek uh, the the, our, the extant Greek versions don't have circumcision of the heart there but the but uh, he's drawing from Deuteronomy 30, which is interpreted together with Jeremiah 31 in other early Jewish literature. Uh, th- those together with uh, Ezekiel 36 often get kind of put together in this stew. You see this, say, at the beginning of of, uh, of Jubilees, where it's doing this. He interprets those together, and the person with the circumcision of the heart is the person who does the nom, uh to nomu, the, di- the, the, the just things of the Torah. And that is what makes that person then liable to be judged justly. So the idea here is that you have unjust people, which he's already set up in Romans 1. These are people who are unjust and thereby under the judgment of God for injustice. They they can't become just by doing these things of Torah because the heart is is really the problem. And they're going to fail in doing so. So what needs to happen is God needs to make the unjust people just so that he can then justly judge those newly justified people as just people and give them eternal life. So that, I think, is what's going on in Romans 2. And by the time you get to Romans 3, he's explaining that, look, doing doing these things of the Torah, deciding to keep these specific commands of the written Torah cannot and never has actually changed the, per- the heart such that people actually keep the full covenant the way that 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 God intended. Instead, what needs to happen is the promise that Deuteronomy makes when Moses tells the people when he gives them when he when he has uh, when he's giving the speech in Deuteronomy. To this day, the Lord has uh, Adonai has not given you hearts to know or or eyes to see. Well, Paul is saying what needs to happen is to get the heart to know and the eyes to see that Moses says you're going to get eventually that's Deuteronomy 30 which comes after that he says God will give you hearts to know God will circumcise your hearts and then all these things are going to be doable so i think that's the the basic idea that is in play in uh in in Romans 2
1: yeah yeah that's really interesting i um so i'm actually doing work on torah in the messianic era and I, I so I'm, I'm working on a lot of Romans 2 as well, and, and also Romans 8. And I think Romans 8 as well, where it's very, very clear, and I see you cite this passage all, over and over and over again, right? It's very clear, like, you actually are fulfilling the Torah, right? Like, like the people who have the Spirit are just doing it, right? So there's no reason, you know, then to go back to Romans 2 and say, this is impossible, right? You just don't have to do that. I mean, even, even if you just read Romans 8, like, you would come to that conclusion that whoever has the Spirit is, you know, part of the new covenant. And that means they're, yeah. the law is written on their heart. That means they're doing Torah in a different way, right? And, and then it allows you to read Romans 3, like, you know, nomu is just referring to b- basically trying to be righteous through the old covenant, right? Which we know doesn't work, right? Because it hasn't worked, right? It,
0: it still wasn't working. <laughs> it, it, it There's just... Not, not only not only did it not work, not only did it not work, but Moses in, De- in Deuteronomy repeatedly tells the people that it won't work. Like, that's the thing that is regularly missed. And I was blown away uh, when I was doing the the research for this book, and I kept finding people saying, you know, what Paul says about the Torah here that, you know, when he says, uh, what was, what was uh, life for me became death. Like, oh, you know, for Paul to say something like this about the Torah is just... It's beyond the pale for for an early Jew. I'm like, he's citing Deuteronomy 30, where I see, I set before you life and death, the blessing and a curse. And Moses says to the people then, by the way, you're not going to observe this, so it's going to be death for you. (laughs) Like Moses repeatedly in Deuteronomy tells the people, like, you don't, God has not given you hearts to know, so you're going to inevitably do this. The Song of Moses is all about Deuteronomy 32, which I think Paul is a very close reader of is all about this. It's saying, well, you know, the people are going to, you, you know, you all are going to rebel, you know, Yeshurun grew fat and kicked and all of this stuff. And, you know, then uh, I will make you jealous by a non-people, by a foolish nation, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, then eventually I will restore you and I will, you know, I, I will uh, uh, make you into a, into a transformed and obedient people. You know, once you've learned your lesson and I've been demonstrated, uh, I've been vindicated as just. Which, you know, that's what a lot of Deuteronomy is about. It's God basically saying, you all, not not great. You're not great. I, however, have been more than just in my treatment of you, and I will continue to be just beyond measure, and I will show you mercy to demonstrate how great I am. Like, that's Deuteronomy. And, you know, when Paul then brings in that you may be vindicated in your in, in your judgment, this is totally in keeping with what we see in Deuteronomy. Where, again, like I said, he's not not inventing anything here. Deuteronomy explicitly says, it has Moses say, this is not going to work so well for you. It's just not. So it's not going to work until God transforms your hearts. When he circumcises your hearts, then that's all going to work out. So good luck until then. And then Moses dies. And then we're told... Since that day, no prophet has arisen. And of course, that's anistemi, which is the word that's used for resurrection in the New Testament. No prophet like Moses has arisen in Israel. And Paul thinks that a prof- the prophet like Moses has arisen, like resurrected, and now is giving Israel the capacity that Moses wasn't able to give them and that the Torah talked about but couldn't actually deliver and promised for the future. Paul says, it's here now through Jesus. Right, and so, so I think the
1: natural conclusion, right, um, and and I this is how I'm reading you, and I well, you kind of say this explicitly in your book, is is to conclude that the people talked about in Romans two are part of Israel, right? They in in this, so I, I can just read this quote. You say, in the same way that Israel became indistinguishable from Gentiles through disobedience and behaving like the other nations, Gentiles are now being incorporated into the new covenant community. Through the law written on their hearts and behaving like faithful, obedient Israelites. So one one question I have is why doesn't Paul call them Israelites here? So so it's particularly like at the end of the chapter, and and you know I, I know we've talked a little bit about Romans two twenty and twenty nine, um, you know what that is saying and you know what the syntax is is, is saying there. But but what wh- why doesn't he just say? Those Gentiles who have the law written on their hearts are Israelites, because because he goes back and forth. It says like you know he's talking about Jews right that are in secret and those that are outward. Um,
0: and there's no mention of Israel. So so why I mean, not until Romans nine, right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think part of that is because is that Romans is an iterative argument. So I, I don't think Paul is ready to go there just yet. I think he steps back from that argument because he wants to leave it until the end of Romans 11, when he finally lets that cat out of the bag with this all Israel statement in Romans 11:26. after which he then proceeds into the, you know, this, uh, you know, doxology, basically, uh, you know, glorifying God for, for, for the, uh, the wonders that he has hidden from past ages, you know, this sort of thing. But I think what he tries to do here is he, He's laying the foundation, so I think Romans two matches up closely. Interestingly, matches up closely with both Romans eight and Romans eleven. Uh, so uh, I think he's he's got certain cycles of the argument that he's setting up here. That he he puts he if the the careful reader who's read all of Romans who knows the prophets and all of this can identify a lot of what he's doing. But once he but it's only really clear once he's actually gotten to the end of the argument. So you can see it and you can start to realize that like proleptically, I think he's putting it in, in, in place, but I think he's holding off partly because I, I suspect that his audience, if he just came out and said, therefore, these Gentiles are Israelites. All right, let's move on. I think he's aware that his audience is going to be like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, back that truck up. Like I did. I, I, I think you've just skipped over some steps. I think what he does, then, from Romans three through Romans 11, is to explain, like, here's how these former Gentiles who've received the spirit are, in fact, resurrected Israelites, as it were. They're people who've been made into Israelites from the nations, and this is part of the plan of God. I think he, he holds that holds that off, He holds the, you know, the, 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 the top card in the deck until the final play and then he puts it on the table and goes okay here's what i've been holding all along and i think it's just a rhetorical move well it is interesting because in you know in romans
1: 8 he does come back to this idea of being obedient to torah right and that that is the sort of and and the spirit especially right and and that's you know at this point in the sons of god right and and i mean in in romans 2 I mean there's the Torah written on the heart, but you don't see the spirit empowering, you know, like you see it in Romans eight. You know, where where Romans eight, like that you just screams at you, okay, and, and it's the spirit at work in these people. And and that I think would you know you you just have to conclude, right? If if the Gentiles I mean that is the argument as well in in um you know in Acts for for baptizing Cornelius. It's like, well, if the spirit has descended, then the, we can't we can't withhold baptism from him, right? I mean, that's just uh, yeah,
0: then who are we? Who are we to argue with God? Right? Exactly.
1: Right? Exactly. And so, if you have demonstrated that these people really are keeping Torah in the way that that the new covenant would propose, and they really have been given the Spirit, then it is, you know, what are they if they're not part of Israel, right? I mean, in in that, you know, it would just have to be you'd have to
0: be part of the new covenant, right? So yeah, now the interesting thing is he does mention spirit one time in Romans two. It's in two twenty-nine. That right, right. It and is now what the, circum- ugram- it ugram- it is the circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the not by letter, right? Yeah. So at that point, that's actually what that's the hook that he then picks back up in Romans eight. What right. he's done is he's connected the, the circumcision of the heart, the law, the Torah written on the heart. With the spirit, which he does elsewhere, he does that in in second uh, Corinthians three where you've got new covenant uh he 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 says new covenant which is jeremiah thirty one then he immediately in the same same spot ties that to reception of the spirit which is ezekiel thirty six and then he's doing this in light of the end of deuteronomy, which is what he's uh, which is the main passage that he's going through there so he's putting these three things together there as well but romans two Sets the, the template. It puts the, puts the foundation down of this is what's going on. It's the, it's the law, the Torah prom, the Torah and the heart promised to Israel, the circumcision of the heart promised to Israel, and the spirit promised to Israel. Okay. Now let's, you know, go on to Romans three. And he leaves that off. And by the time you get to Romans eight, he's now explaining how this actually works. And when you read Romans two in light of Romans eight, all of that makes sense. And of course, Romans two has set the, the stage for how to read Romans eight. And then, of course, that leads to the problem that he brings up in Romans 9, which is, okay, wait, hold on, hold on. So what you're saying then, if these people are receiving the Spirit, and they're, they're children of God, which is, like, that's also Israel, um, so they're children of God, they're receiving the Spirit, and all of this is going down, but these are not, like, these are uncircumcised men. Like, has God abandoned his people? Well, then he now he goes into well. Let me explain how this actually works in terms of this is not a uh, a departure from God's f- fidelity to Israel. In fact, this is God's fidelity to Israel beyond the grave, as it were. That God has pro- has has remained so faithful to Israel that He's actually going to bring Israel back from a state of of being gone, of of non being, of death. And that this is actually the the ultimate victory of God, not only over the nations, but over the gods of the nations and over, uh, you know, the, the powers of this age, that he is resurrecting his people from among the nations, from these uncircumcised people are actually resurrected Israelites, and this is God's victory. So I think that's what he does. And again, it all it all works nicely. By the time you get to the end of Romans 8, you should be asking, like, these are uncircumcised men. Like, this is not what we like, how does this work? This is supposed to be Israel. Like, this is not what we're supposed to be seeing. And then he explain. then he spends three chapters explaining that and saying, no, this is actually God's faithfulness to Israel that is being revealed through these uncircumcised men receiving the spirit.
1: Yeah. So that I, so I want to get into this now, this Romans nine through 11 stuff. Um, Cause you know, we could talk about any of these passages, uh, for a very long time but but so i think that's a really good summary of kind of just the, the argument right so but you make some very specific you know again like like i said i mean I, you're a very careful to of the text um and and necessarily so right because we're just dealing with texts that have been combed over so often um how how what is your reading I know you wrote an article recently on this as well um, what is your reading of the two vessels at the end of Romans and nine how does that fit in to this whole reading because you know again we so many people read Romans nine you know in light of Calvinism versus Arminianism right or or it's just certain you know I mean especially you know on a lay level it's just like predestination you know it's like what is he saying um but your picture of Romans nine through eleven is very different than most people's. So, how does that inform how we read like this particular text?
0: Yeah. Once again, I think the the most important thing to bring in, and, and you mentioned this is all in the uh, Harvard Theological Review article, which is open access. If anybody wants to download that, that's that's available. Yeah, we'll definitely put um, a link in the show notes as well. But but uh, the the basic thing here, excuse me, the basic thing. Uh, f- for me, is if we're going to read this passage well, which is about, God, it's comparing God to a potter who works with clay, uh, you know, making different vessels from a single lump. Uh, if we're going to read this carefully, we need to know how this image is used in the early Jewish literature, in the scripture and early Jewish literature that Paul's pulling from. And the, the, you know, the, the, the largest and most, uh, you know, best known example of this is in is in uh uh jeremiah 18 where god compares himself to a potter he tells jeremiah go out and i want you to watch a potter at work and then the potter is working with the clay and the clay becomes misshapen in the potter's hand and then the clay and then the potter balls it back up and makes it into something else and then god says see am i not like this potter Am I not also able to improvise? Can I not, uh, then if I declare a, a word about a nation or a person or, or a people, uh, and, uh, and that person or nation or people, uh, does something different, they change their behavior. Can I not then change my intention for that people? Well, that's a pretty big statement. <laughs> like God actually says, like, The way that people respond to him is going to then impact whether he follows through with the plan that he has stated for that people. Otherwise, he'll change the plan and and state something else and then do something else. So this is establishing an interactive notion of how God works with His people. And actually, in Jeremiah, in the narrative of Jeremiah, it actually there's there's two aspects of this because this is then followed up by an appeal to the people for repentance saying uh so uh there's you know wh- why will you die <laughs> like repent change your ways uh you know house of judah please do so uh and then they don't and then the next chapter is god telling jeremiah to take a finished pot and go out and break it in the sight of the people and say okay well here's here's what's going to happen so now you know the the the, era, the 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 time in which they were pliable and get, were given the opportunity to 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 change and to, uh, to submit to God's hand is, is gone. And so now they'll be destroyed, you know, because they, they hardened themselves. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of narrative that's underlying, I think, what, what Paul's pulling on here when he compares God to Potter. Uh, you know, this is something these are, that's two full chapters of a prophet. So, um, in terms of that, that image. So my reading of what's going on in Romans, uh, 9, 19 through 24 is that God is, is that Paul is presenting God as a God of pathos. I'm I'm borrowing language from Abraham Heschel, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel there, uh, where God is responsive and interactive working with stubborn clay. And if you read anything from any era of people who work with clay, potters who work with clay, they always refer to clay as very stubborn, having a mind of its own and all of these things, which makes it a great image for stubborn people. Uh, It's a very poor choice of image. If you want to betray, if you want to use this as an example of God being able to do whatever he wants, you know, with something that's inert. The thing about clay is that it feels like it's fighting against you when it's spinning on the wheel. Um, So uh, this is, God is working with Israel in particular and humanity in general in this relational process. And so when God makes these decisions, this is not a unilateral decision in which he forces people to make specific decisions for his own purposes. Rather, he is in the, in the con, in the, in a constant relational, uh, uh, in a constant, um, interactive relationship with the clay that he's working with and how the clay responds to God's hand is going to have impact on what ultimately happens with that clay. And so his argument is, uh, and, uh, you know, in the, in the article, I get into some fine, uh, uh, into some fairly, you know, detailed weeds about the, the, the Greek, uh, definitions uh, about the vocabulary that he uses here, which is very specialized vocabulary. I argue that, that he does not say that God has endured with much patience, vessels, vessels of wrath, uh destined for destruction or predestined for destruction he it 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 actually says that god has produced vessels of wrath which of course is a language that is borrowed from jeremiah jeremiah 50:25 um so uh he's pulling from that and saying god has produced these vessels of wrath and reshaped for destruction and and, and the word that he uses there is not predestined but rather a word that that notes uh, bringing something to, it's the same word that's used for, you know, mending nets and uh, fixing something that's broken. The idea here is that he is, he's in the process, he's in an iterative process of, uh, of responsively reshaping based on how the clay is responding to his hand. And he has the right to make from one lump. And I think the one lump is the same lump that we see later on in Romans 11, which Paul identifies as Israel, uh, make different, you know, people for, for, uh, for different purposes and to different destinies from that same lump. Uh, so I think that's, what's going on in that passage. And he's explaining that, you know, God has had a right to deal with his people the way that he has that when Israel didn't submit to his hand, he had a right to, you know, take them in a particular direction, just like what Jeremiah said he would. Uh, and, and that this is a defense of God's justice in, uh, in the face of what has happened to Israel over the generations. So, so this leads into, you know,
1: the Hosea quotes about, you know, not my people, right? Um, how does that fit into the kid mean, Because you, I mean, you discuss this quite a bit in the book and, and I found it very helpful. How, how does that relate to what has just been said and to Gentile inclusion?
0: Yeah, I, I think Hosea is actually one of the most uh, foundational pieces of, of scripture for Paul. Uh, there's actually a, a, a book, uh, by Foster, Robert Foster, that argues this, uh, that Hosea is really, that Paul is reading Hosea together with the, the narratives of the patriarchs in Genesis and a few other things as really foundational to his arguments here. And I think, I think he's basically right about that. Um, but I think the key thing here is to remember that Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom. These are non-Jewish Israelites that Hosea is speaking to. And Hosea says, God is basically divorcing you. And that's the language that Jeremiah uses when he references Hosea. God gave Israel their certificate of divorce, and he sent them away for their breaking the covenant. Because Israel was uh, was unfaithful. Uh, they were an unfaithful spouse to God, uh, to the God of Israel. And so God declares to them, you are not my people. Lo ami. Uh, and Paul reads this, not my people, I think in a really interesting way, because, uh, and he, I think he reads this together, by the way, with the non-people or the not-people uh, from Deuteronomy 32-21 in the Song of Moses, which refers to that as well. Uh, and I think he reads this, you know, in a specific way where he understands that Israel is my people, right? That you will be my people and I will be your God. That's what Israel that's what makes Israel Israel. That's what makes them the people of God in the, in the Torah. Uh, but then my people become not my people, which I think he reads not my people as meaning non-Israelites. And we got to remember before the first century, I mean, goy or ethne is not you know this you know in the in in the Hebrew Bible, ethne or goy is these are not the standard terms meaning just non-Israelite if you're going to look for a term that means something closest to non-Israelite, it's going to be not my people. And I think Paul reads that, meaning non-Israelites, and he reads that terminology in light of Israel's breaking of the covenant, the divorce of Israel, then the scattering and assimilation of Israel among the nations, and concludes, along with, say, uh, a reading of Second Kings 17, that Israel was essentially gentilized, that they ceased to be Israel, by virtue and this is especially the northern kingdom that Hosea is talking about Hosea is not prophesying this about about Judah right so if we want to talk about this in terms of like the prodigal son story there are two sons one of them stays stays home the other one's out with the pigs and the other one that's out with the pigs is the north right the one that's left behind and is still with the, with the with the father is is Judah well Israel in uh second Kings 17 is said it says, They followed the nothing and they became nothing. They followed the nations that surround that surrounded them. And then it breaks off actually. It doesn't actually finish the parallel phrase. I think Paul finishes that parallel phrase in his own head and says, and became the nations that surrounded them. So they followed the nothing and became nothing. They followed the nations that surrounded them, and by implication, they became the nations that surrounded them. So Israel becomes gentilized and become assimilated among the nations. But Paul also thinks that God is going to be faithful to his promise that he will regather and restore Israel from not my people, which is what Hosea then follows up with. I will one day say to those who are not my people, my people, and I will redeem you from the nations among whom I scattered you. So when Paul sees then Gentiles receiving the Spirit, non non-Jews uncircumcised men receiving the spirit promised to Israel as a part of the new covenant restoration I think for him the the pretty natural move is to conclude that these spirit-filled gentiles are essentially resurrected Israelites who've been redeemed from the nations and I think that's what he argues in Romans 9 to 11 Yeah it's it's really interesting because if you do
1: assume your sort of model like of the the problem right of like okay we're expecting the restoration of Israel then really there's only two options i mean you, you like it's not just jews right like you have to have more than just judah right to restore israel so you have to have people that are outside of judah right and it could be samaria right or other nations right i mean those. i mean I, I don't really know a, a, another option
0: right for for paul well, to say there, there is an alternative there is there is one alternative that that shows up actually in uh like 4th Ezra for example which is you know just a little bit after Paul written just a little bit after Paul and this is the idea that you have the uh, the northern uh, the northern tribes uh they all like the faithful people from the northern tribes who were scattered they all went east and they in, in 4th Ezra they went so far east that they're you know sort of out of sight out of memory but they've been multiplying in great numbers way out there, and they're across the Sabbath River. <laughs> you know, this legend kind of grows, but basically they're, you know, at some point in the future, God is going to restore these people that are way out there. They're so far out there. None of us are in contact with them anymore, but then these Israelites will come back. And we see a hint of that even in Josephus as well, who's also a first century Jew, uh, who says, uh, in, in his explanation of what happened to Israel when he shipped. So Josephus in, The Antiquities uses Israel language all the way up until Book Eleven, and then he doesn't use it again in Antiquities, and he doesn't use it anywhere else in his corpus in the Josephine corpus. After Book Eleven, he uses uh, Yehudaioi all the time, and he uses and he explains uh, uh, when he makes the transition from here forward, you know, basically I'm going to be talking about, I'm, I'm, I'm going to call them, uh, U- I'm going to call them Jews because they're, you know, Judah was the preeminent tribe to come from those places from, from that place. And from Judah, the land took its name and also the rest of the people, even though there's a couple other tribes there as for the 10 tribes though, he says they remain across the Euphrates to the East in great numbers right and he he indicates this in, in uh, uh and there's actually a little bit of a undercurrent there that you know Rome Rome may uh, and he says therefore uh only uh, uh only uh two only the two tribes have come under roman rule but the 10 tribes they're across the euphrates in great numbers and there's this implication of like when god wants the 10 tribes will sweep in and rome will be no more kind of thing so there is this option that's a, that's another that's a third option so you have the Samaritans, but the problem with the Samaritans is that they're only the Joseph tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Then you've got, you know, you've still got to get the rest. So you've got the Samaritans and then you've got the others that are out there somewhere that you see this show up in some of these other places. Also, uh, the book of Tobit has, you know, uh, to, uh, the Tobias family goes to, uh, you know, they go further and further east as God Saves that as God continues to preserve this Naphtalite family, they're Naphtalite Israelites, right? They're not Jews, uh, and so this is this is a live option. But the other option is, well, they assimilated. They're you know, and God is going to have to bring them back, going to have to call them out from the nations in the same way that He did a- Abraham in the first place when Abraham was uncircumcised, and that is the option that Paul takes is. They've been put into the state that is, that Abraham was before he was called. And now they're going to have to be called out like Abraham was. And just like Abraham was uncircumcised when he received the promise, so they too are also uncircumcised when they receive the fulfillment of the promise. So I think that's what he does that is distinctive. And, you know, for what it's worth, it's interesting that, you know, the synoptic gospels have, you know, the gospels to be preached, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth is Deuteronomic language for where Israel will be scattered for breaking the covenant. Right. It says, though I scatter you to the ends of the earth, same thing in the, uh, in in, there's one spot in Leviticus that it says the same thing. So this is the, this is the, the, it's all getting back to this notion of God redeeming Israel and God is redeeming Israel. According to Paul by basically resurrecting Israel from the gentilized state that he called Abraham from in the first place. Right, right. So I I, I want to ask
1: two quick questions if you have a, a little bit more time. I mean, they might not be that that quick. <laughs> um so let me know if if uh you know you you do run out of time here. But but one of the things is okay, so so we have this Gentile inclusion thing. How how does the Messiah then fit into this picture? I mean, I know that's again kind of a big question. So in, in particular, my my I I this we started this series with a conversation with um josh josh chip and and we were talking about messiah right and and his work on that and i i asked him the question like how does the messiah change the identity of israel and he just said oh well it doesn't and and i said well well if if the messiah if with the coming of the messiah you have gentile inclusion gentiles being grafted in right then how wouldn't that change, you know, Israel's composition, right? And he basically concluded we should ask ask you about it. So I I, I feel like you know just <laughs> kind of in um, you know, required to ask you. Um, does the Messiah change the identity of Israel? How how does this work? I mean, for for me, I, I when when I, again when I when I see particularly Romans ten, right, where the Messiah comes back in. Right, the, the Christ he comes back in, and and, and um, it leads into Romans eleven, where you have the grafting in. It seems like the Messiah is the thing that allows for the the integration of of Gentiles into Israel. I mean that. I mean, and I, and I think
0: I think that's how I'm um, reading you, but you can correct me if I'm if I'm uh, mistaken there. So th- this is tricky um, for a couple reasons. One is I. I on the one hand, I agree with Josh that that I don't think Paul understands Jesus as changing Israel in the sense of like Israel becomes something else. i I don't think that's right. I think for paul, um, i i think I think for from Paul's perspective, the Messiah restores Israel and raises Israel from the dead, giving Israel the life that the Torah promised but couldn't itself deliver. So, I mean, again, you've got to remember that properly speaking, there was no Israel in Paul's day, right? Paul is, you know, the the land that Paul is, you know, the land that 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 has its metropolis as Jerusalem is Judea. It's Judah. When when uh, when Ezra and Nehemiah return and they, you know, you have the the return from Babylon. They don't establish a renewed Israel. They 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 establish Judah. And you know you see the same the, the same sorts of things uh, throughout the Second Temple period. So properly speaking, there isn't Israel in Paul's day. I mean, where's the tribe of Reuben? So Israel just doesn't exist in your view. Yeah, Israel Israel has for for Paul, Israel has has died. Right. Right. Like the Messiah. And Paul thinks that the Messiah, through his death and resurrection, has come to reunify, has come to revivify and reunify Israel and Judah giving them all the etern- all eternal life through the spirit and making them obedient transforming them to, into an obedient and just people no longer subject to and assimilated among the nations but now in position to be glorified to rule not only over the world but over the angels themselves i mean this is what he what he sees so israel becomes glorified in the process but i don't think israel is uh like in terms of its the nature of its composition that paul sees this as as fundamentally different other than that Israel is now empowered to do what the Torah, you know, uh, uh, pointed to all along. And one of the reasons that I, that I, 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 say that is Israel was always a, uh, if you read, if you read the, the, the Hebrew Bible carefully, Israel was always incorporating non-Israelites from outside and grafting them in. I mean, the first story we get in the book of of uh, in the conquest narrative of of Joshua involves the integration of Rahab and her whole family, and they become Israelites. They're Canaanites who who through their uh, through her her fidelity to the God of Israel and her her pledge to serve the God of Israel, they become engrafted into Israel. And the people that cross over into the over the Jordan to begin with, when they come out of Egypt. They are a mixed multitude. This is not just the descendants of Israel. This is a mixed multitude that then intermarry into the in, into the descendants of Israel, and they become engrafted into Israel. And you know, David, you know, Batsheva is the uh, is the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. He's a Hittite. He's not an Israelite. He's one of the mighty men. Right. Over and over and over again, we find that. uh And and by the way, Rahab, you know, in in Jewish tradition, Rahab marries joshua so i mean this is this is part and parcel of the whole process all along that there were there were always there always was an avenue for uh engrafting of non-israelites into israel where they become israelites or at least their children become israelites uh so that's always a possibility and i think what paul does is he he says this is happening by becoming israelites in the way that Abraham became Abraham, like the the spirit then selects you out and, and draws you into this. And now you have this, you become a part of this people through this engrafting process. And the process is a little bit different, but I think the, I think the, he sees the basic idea is the same. So you think people
1: in, like all those people, those, you know, Gentiles, Uriah, and all these people would have been considered Israel, even if they weren't circumcised? Because th- that to me is the difference, you know, post-Messiah, right? It is a, it, it's, you know, you don't have to be circumcised anymore, right? And in that sense, un- it is it is different than, you know, prior Messiah.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, and that actually is uh, it, the, the, the means of entrance, the means of engrafting, I think does change. But I think that there's also some evidence that, you know, throughout the 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 Hebrew Bible, you have some different uh, notions of exactly how that works anyway. But uh, I do think you're right that, that prior to Messiah, Paul would have said, yeah, you know, circumcision, you know, is, is, is a necessary thing, physical circumcision, but Paul doesn't think that these Gentiles are uncircumcised. Right. I mean, he makes that clear, right? He thinks that they are circumcised people. It's just that their heart has been circumcised, which is what the Torah was all about to begin with. And in my reading of what he does with um, uh, with the uh, Abraham narrative, I think he understands Abraham as having received physical circumcision as a consequence of his disobedient behavior, of his unjust behavior with Hagar, uh, and so the 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 uh the law followed, uh tra- followed the trespass essentially, and you know Genesis fifteen is the part that matters most for those who are coming in in the state that Abraham was to begin with. Just don't behave like he did with Hagar and you don't need circumcision. And since you've had the circumcision of the heart already, well, this is actually already got you to where you need to go. Uh, now the interesting question, and I, you know, I've kicked this around a good bit. I can't really go there in the book because it's speculative. I do wonder what Paul would have said or did say to, uh, to, parents who had baby boys within the church in his communities. Okay, so we just had a baby boy. Should we circumcise him on the eighth day or not? You know, Paul is pretty adamant that you don't get in, you do not become a part of Israel by receiving physical circumcision, but rather by receiving the spirit. But, once you're actually integrated and you're part of Israel and then you have a child, I wonder, and I suspect that at least for Jewish parents, he would have said, yeah, keep doing it. Right. So, I mean, I think that would be, that would exactly be the distinction, right? If if you're
1: Jewish, right, then, you know, fine. But if you're a Gentile, you are Israel, but not circumcised. But not physically circumcised. Right? And and I think yeah. that is the category, right? That's exactly the sort of category that is I feel like missing in Old Covenant, right? The like true Israelite in every sense except circumcision.
0: Yeah, well and and again, I think I think the key there though is that the the thing that's different is throughout the Hebrew Bible you don't have uh Israel as a whole having the circumcision of the heart. Right. Right. You, you would right. Have I mean to have that's, what that's, a, that's what Moses explicitly that's that's moses explicitly tells them. Right. It's like, yeah, God hasn't done this with you yet. Right. And for Paul, that's been done. That's been so if there's anything about Israel that's been changed, it's that they've been given circumcised hearts and they've been resurrected from the dead. In in the in the sense of being made into a people from uh not people. Right. Uh and you know they're and now they're awaiting the you know the final stage of the resurrection, which is, you know, this, uh, you know, glorification. So Israel has is changed in the, in those respects, but I think it's, you know, I don't think Paul would say Israel is, you know, is, is, uh, that there's been a, you know, ontological change in, you know, sort of what Israel is or whatnot. Uh, I think he would have pointed to like, look, I mean, in Jesus' own genealogy, you have multiple non uh, you know, descent, people who are not descendants of Israel, who are a part of this, and they're grafted in, and this is just this is always the way it's been. So, so in that sense, then
1: Israel is just not a an exclusively, you know,
0: ethnic term, and I think that's part of ah, exclusively. What does ethnic mean? Well, right, right, that's right. The I know, I know, is, I know, I know. What I... does ethnic mean? Right. So that's the thing. I think, I think for Paul, it is completely an ethnic term. It is, but we have to get away from this idea that ethnicity is solely based on parentage, that it's solely based on genealogy. I think the ethnicity, race, all of it, because look, race is every bit, uh, race is a cultural thing. Race is a cultural construct as much as it is about, I mean, even today, race is, is a cultural construct, right? These are categories that, that are cultural uh, every bit as much as there, there is a, uh, genealogical function, and I think New Testament interpreters have gotten themselves in real trouble by assuming that ethnicity or race is solely based on genealogy, on genetics, essentially. And that's never been true in any place, in any time. I mean, adoption immediately changes that 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 game at every level, in every culture that's ever existed. So you know, anytime we're talking about ethnicity, we're dealing with a whole bundle of, uh, and, you know, Paula Fredrickson has a really good bit on this in her late, uh, latest uh, JBL piece where she had, she talks about the bundle of, you know, God, uh, it, you know, uh, God, culture, uh, you know, uh, uh, norms, you know, that, that are practiced within the group. Uh, uh, then genealogy is a part of it, but not, you know, all of it, all of this is bundled together. So for me, when Paul says Israel, and when he talks about Israelites, he is absolutely talking about something that in his mind maps onto what for us would be ethnic or racial, or an ethnic or racial category. I mean, this they don't have the the degree of you know separating some of those things out that, that happens in modern scholarship in terms of trying to define, like, well, is this an ethnic category or a religious category? For him, that would be an incoherent distinction. Even if we're going to read the term ethnic or ethnicity back into this, I think he absolutely thinks of Israel and Israel, Israeliteness as a, an ethnic concept. He just thinks that God can transform some people from one ethnicity into another. And of course, there are examples of this in any intermarriage situation where, you know, the whole point of what I think he—of his reading of what's going on with Israel is Israel becomes gentilized. They become other ethnicities as they intermarry into those ethnicities. And now God is, re, is remaking, is revivifying, is resurrecting Israel from those different ethnicities and establishing them as the ethnic identity of Israel once again. And I think that's what he's doing. So these are not like— Israelites who just aren't aware that they're Israelites or something like that, where you just need to go back and look at the genealogy closely enough, which for what it's worth, I think actually, um, uh, in first Timothy, where it talks about, you know, excessive attention to genealogy. I wonder whether or not that's actually what this is talking about of like, you know, basically Gentile converts coming in and trying to figure out like how far back maybe they, they might've had an Israelite parent and that this is, you know, how this works. And, 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 uh, whoever you know whether it's paul or you know some other pauline author of, of first timothy they're going that's a waste of time it's about the spirit the spirit is what transforms you into this into this ethnic state you're into already this ethnic an status that's right so
1: so th- this is the last last question um and and I, I i knew i got in trouble when i mentioned eth- ethnicity and then and then race because you have a <laughs> very extensive discussion on those terms which i actually agreed with but i i'm stuck with this these terms and how I, how it's been used, but the, and then I, then I thought genealogical, and then I thought, oh, well, well, they're also sons of Abraham. So I, I don't really know what the term is, <laughs> you know, but, but, but that, but that is the actual point is that they're completely, that's, right. open. that's the point. They're completely there, you know, like in every sense. Right. I mean, I think that's, that is the big idea. And,
0: and not only are they sons of Abraham, but we, uh, you know, there are some folks who, uh, who, uh, with whom I'm, I'm, you know, having, uh, I'm arguing against in this book who say, well, you know, they're children of Abraham, but they're definitely not Israelites because, you know, Jews are Israelites and you know, they're obviously not Jews. He includes them as descendants of Israel in the wilderness in, in first, uh, first Corinthians 10, right? He says, our fathers, when our fathers were in the wilderness, well, if they are, if those are our fathers, those are Israelites. Those are people from Israel. so not only Abraham, but Israel, uh, you know, they're, 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 integrated into the genealogy. And I think in general, in the ancient world, people were more comfortable with what we might call fictive kinship. That, you know, you're integrated into the genealogy by that dotted line that, you know, well, you're adopted. And guess what language Paul uses for these people coming in? That they have been adopted. You you talk about Romans 8. These people are being adopted as sons,
1: Yep, genealogical.
0: So all, all the terms apply. So so then who—so
1: Romans 11, just really quick, 25 and 26, you know, so many people have struggled out w- over this passage. A partial insensibility has come upon Israel for a while, and thus all Israel will be saved. What does that mean?
0: Well, you left out the part that uh, I think is the most important there, which is uh, un- until the fullness of the nations comes in, right. and thus all Israel will be saved. So the fullness of the nations is actually the means by which is all Israel will be saved. Uh, and basically what I see here is a historical, uh, restatement of restoration eschatology that Israel, uh, disobeyed and became insensible and a, a portion of Israel became insensible. And basically we, we, we see in the uh, olive tree that, you know, once you become insensible, you're, you're cut off right if you if you persist in diso- if you persist in infidelity then you're then the branches are cut off and there are multiple iterations of this kind of pruning process in Israel's history where you know parts of Israel are cut off and then you have the remnant that remains you have the part that remains which is the remnant uh and i think what he says is parts of uh, uh, uh Israel became you know, parts of Israel became insensible, or Israel became partly insensible, and I think for him this is a historical fact. It's just indisputable. You read scripture and you find out that like Israel, over and over and over again, experienced these partial hardenings over and over again, and uh, you know, ultimately that led to being scattered among the nations. But that then allowed for the ingathering of the fullness of the nations, which. I argue uh, in this book, and also I argued back in uh, the JBL article in 2011, which also is now open access after, what, 10 years. Um, uh, Which we can also uh, put in the show notes. Yeah, my argument there is that when he says fullness of the nations, this is a very strange uh, bit of wording. And lots of people have struggled with it on what he means by fullness of the nations, and it turns out there's one other example of that exact phrase that shows up elsewhere in uh in early jewish literature and that's in genesis 48:19 where uh when J- when joseph blesses the two children of of uh, 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 uh or when jacob blesses the two children of joseph who by the way are part african remember you know the, the, the joseph marries the 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 egyptian uh, priestess, uh, the daughter of the priest of On. So, you know, w- once again, we have ingrafting from the outside illustrated in Joseph's children. Uh, but when he blesses Joseph's children, he puts the right hand on Ephraim and he says, his seed will become the fullness of the nations. And this is, a, this is such a difficult phrase in the Hebrew, maloha, maloha Goyim. This is such an odd phrase in Hebrew that first of all, it doesn't appear anywhere else. And second of all, in the Septuagint it is actually harmonized to the promise to, to, uh, to Abraham that, uh, that, uh you, uh, you, uh, and also to, uh, to Jacob where, uh, your, your seed will become a multitude of nation or it will become a, uh, uh, what is it? Um, yeah, a multitude of, of peoples. Uh, so they change it in the versions of the Septuagint that, that have been passed down to us. Uh, but the Hebrew itself just says the fullness of the nations, which is a very strange thing that his seed will become that. I think, again, Paul is reading this through the lenses of Hosea and Israel, specifically Hosea, not only is talking to the Northern kingdom of Israel, but there are places where Hosea explicitly addresses Ephraim, which is the chief tribe of the Northern kingdom. And Ephraim is to be, is to be scattered. So this is the sun that is to be, that is to become the fullness of the nations. And it's that sun that then gets scattered among the nations. And even with the Samaritans, the, the usual Jewish polemic is, you guys are a bunch of inter, intermarried, non-pure Israelite house. Like, you're not real Israelites, you intermarried. Well, that's the slur about the, about the Samaritans who associate themselves with Ephraim and Manasseh and then you get this goes further with all of the others that were scattered among the nations and i think paul reads this and says if ephraim is if the promise to ephraim is actually to be fulfilled ephraim had to become insensible in order to be sown among the nations so that ephraim's seed would be all among the nations and now the harvest of ephraim's seed is being re- is being reaped from the nations and this is how all israel and I think that's the emphasis here. And this is how all Israel, not just the Jews, not just Jews and Samaritans, but all of Israel will be saved. And so then he brings, I, I see this as like the moment he puts his whole, you know, hand on the table and says, here's my royal flush. The whole plan all along has been for God to integrate all of the nations within the, uh, within the, 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 the promise to Abraham. And the means of doing this was for disobedient. Well, well, first of all, since Israel disobeyed, the means of doing this became, and this is where I think the, 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 um, potter clay thing actually works in here. It may have been done differently had Israel obeyed. But since Israel disobeyed, the means for doing it is to use Israel's disobedience to extend the promise to Israel, to the nations in which Israel is now scattered and, and you know, uh irredeemably scattered it would seem but since the promise is still to Israel now those among whom Israel has been integrated the promise applies to them too and this is how all Israel will be saved i think that's the conclusion to the argument
1: meaning that israel is is includes people that we often don't think of as israel <laughs> if i can say say it that's that that's right way. non-jews yeah right
0: yeah, it includes, it, it and, and again, pretty much anybody within the Second Temple period would understand that that Israel has to include non-Jews, but uncircumcised non-Jews from the Greeks, they're not Israelites. Right. And Paul's saying, if they've received the Spirit, that is God's stamp of approval that they are, in fact, Israelites, and you'd better get used to it. That's his argument.
1: So I'll give you the last word on this, at, on how do you defend your view against someone who just says it's the same thing as supersessionism because, because it is in like part of that whole argument has been that Judaism equals Israel. Right. And so they've read Israel as look, this is like Israel is, you know, they, I can, I, I'm talking for them here, but ethnic, Jews, right? Um, and, and, and Paul But What does ethnic mean, of course? Right, I know, I know, I know. But but Paul Friedrichson says this, right? I mean, in a recent article, she, she just says flat out that you know I take this to mean Israel equals, you know, Israel equals ethnic Jewish, right?
0: And so so at that, point, I have to say I have to say I found that kind of interesting from her because she knows my work there, and she didn't actually cite that she was arguing against me, but. I could feel her kind of looking in my direction, you know, sort of out of the side of her eyes saying, I don't actually want to have <laughs> to, to, to argue against this. So I'm just going to stay. And she says it, I, this, I, I operate from the presumption in, in, in italics that Israel means the Jews. Right, right. It, and then she just moves on. Uh, it, but again, the way that she said it was a way to basically state her priors, which I respect uh to state her priors without actually having to engage with any ar- in, in any argument about that
1: so but but the the bigger question of of how how do you address this concern for people who 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 do just say okay well if israel is just jew and gentile and it's people that have been in dwelt with the spirit like paul might just call them you know the church right i mean i mean and they would just say okay like this is just a different form of the same argument that we've been you know we've seen already. And then, and then
0: we'll, we will shut it down. So I, this is tricky because I, I think the first thing that needs to be recognized is that, that when Paul says that some Jews are being cut off for infidelity, and then others from the outside are being grafted in, uh, this is not an, this is not actually that anomalous. He in this respect, he's no more supersessionist than Philo who talks about Jews being cut off and then proselytes being brought in to, to uh, uh, be attached to the root and provide um, new life. So Philo talks about this. This is in uh, On Rewards and Punishment. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls have numerous places where you know their enemies will be swept away. <laughs> you know these are these are other fellow Jews who are going to be swept away for their disobedience. You know Ezra and Nehemiah. I mean, geez, uh, there there are other people there. You know Sanballat, who's the the governor of of Samaria, surely regarded himself as an Israelite. They reject this, and they regard they 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 claim preeminence and say basically, if you're not part of our group, then you're not really a part of this whole thing like that's no less supersessionist. The editors of the Mishnah are no less supersessionist, you know all Israel will have a place in the world to come except for except parties. if you're uh you know if you're uh, you know you follow the Sadducees on this, if you disbelieve in the resurrection and they give this whole list of of exceptions, like wait a second, so only all Israel that agrees with your particular stance here is actually going to have a place in the world to come. Um, you know, I think that just puts Paul, that makes Paul just like any number of other early Jewish uh, thinkers who believed that disobedient, unfaithful Jews or Israelites from their perspective would be cut off and not included in the eschatologically redeemed or restored people of Israel. And for me, uh, you know, this ultimately is actually not really and and the one last thing uh, actually about that on those lines even the idea of judaism as the proper heir or you know rabbinic judaism you know getting more specific in that respect as the proper heir to the legacy of israel over and against say the, the samaritans or over against you know other uh claimants that that were available in the second temple period that is that itself if this is going to apply to paul is going to apply as much to you know the fact that that the Hebrew Bible is a book about Israel that ultimately becomes the scripture for Jews from Judah. And it's got all this about Israel that it's the God of Israel that has been adopted by Jews who are part of Israel, but you know, not the whole, like, okay, at what point is that supersessionist? So I think Paul is, 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 uh, a part of a long tradition of, Arguing that there is a particular way to be the people of the God of Israel, and that His way is the right way, I don't think if we're going to be good readers of Paul that we should shy away from that reality. That you know, that's that's just I think the way he worked. I do think that supersessionism is the wrong terminology for that. I think Paul is a is a remnant theologian more than he's a supersessionist, because supersessionism more or less requires that you have one group replace another. And I think if you asked Paul, like, so you're saying, like, the Gentile church is replacing, like, the Jews as Israel? He'd have been like, are you out of your mind? No. Of course not. Gentiles are being grafted into Israel. And Israel includes Jews like me. Right? I mean, he says this. It says, I too am in Israel. Like, I'm, I'm from Benjamin. Like, God has not forsaken his people whom he foreknew. I'm an Israelite. I'm, I'm from Benjamin. So, I think he would have said that. Now, that, I think, again, makes him a remnant or sectarian theologian rather than a supersessionist. Where it gets tricky is I think it very quickly becomes supersessionist in practice once the you know, previously mixed. I think in Paul's day, the, 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 uh, Jesus movement is still mostly Jewish. Even in Paul's churches, there's Jews. And I think the majority of people who are following Jesus in the forties and fifties when Paul's doing this stuff are still Jews. And I think a generation later, once it's mostly Gentiles and Gentiles who've come in largely through Paul's inter- uh, interaction and his influence, I think it becomes supersessionist because at that point you have a much lower uh, a much smaller percentage of Jews and ultimately Jews become a uh, sort of an other in a way that they aren't really for Paul and uh, in, w- in a way that wouldn't even be coherent for Paul. Uh, and I think it becomes supersessionist as the, as the the composition changes in the next generation. And, you know, there's just no way around that. I think that's just part of the history but that shouldn't impact or affect the way that we read Paul. I think we have to be faithful readers of him historically before we, you know, get into whether or not the way that this develops in, you know, among his successors is actually the way that it should have developed.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. And, and, and I do think, you know, again, going back to your answer on the Messiah question, you know, the identity of Israel has always been the same. And I think that is actually the big point for Paul. You know, it's always been... The, about the people who are sons of abraham in this way right they they have and faith. who are faithful exactly. to the god of they israel have, they, exactly they have rahab they have becomes like
0: integrated into israel because she pledges her full allegiance to the god of israel and gives up all of her gods and then marries in and she become her family becomes part of israel because of
1: it right right so is is god not the god of you know the nations, also, right at the end of Romans 3. I mean, seems like it. So, so that is, um, you know, a good place to, to stop. I, I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed, um, you know, this conversation, but also the book. I mean, I think it's going to be really helpful for people. Um, any closing thoughts on the book or, or anything else?
0: I just cannot wait to finish the indexing so that this is out. <laughs> I, I want to, you know. I surely did not get everything right and I want to I want to see what uh, ultimately uh people's responses are and where others can take my my uh my arguments forward and and hopefully we can all learn together on this and and get a better understanding of what's actually going on in the Pauline epistles which is really what I'm after.
1: Well that's yeah and that's uh, hopefully what we are all after um and again just really appreciate how careful you are um about you know every every text every word um, and that's, that's really what needs to get to be done. And that's, I, I think you did a great job. Um, so that's all we have time for on this episode of the biblical languages podcast. Thank you, Jason, for joining us.
0: Thank you so much. This was, this was so fun.
1: And thank you to all of our listeners out there who have taken the time to listen to the biblical languages podcast
0: brought to you by Biblingo. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you for listening to the Biblical Languages podcast brought to you by Biblingo. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. You can also follow Biblingo on social media to discuss the episode with us and other listeners. And don't forget to visit Biblingo.org to start your 10-day free trial of Biblingo.